The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 5 and verse 21, the 21st verse in the 5th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. We are looking here at the fifth woe, which is pronounced by the prophet Isaiah upon his contemporaries some 800 years before the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've been seeing Sunday night after Sunday night, this is the sixth Sunday evening, we've been considering this great chapter, this message delivered by the prophet to his contemporaries in their condition and position of trial and trouble and much evil appearing upon the horizon. These prophets were men raised up by God to address the nation, to call it to stop for a moment and to consider its ways, ere it was too late. And in these prophecies, which all of them really are saying exactly the same thing, we have the mind of God, not only upon the condition of the children of Israel at that particular juncture in their long and checkered history, but we have the mind of God upon the whole state and condition of the human race at all times, in all places, but in particular at certain eras and epochs when, as we were seeing last Sunday night, sin seems to overreach itself and we are in a state and condition that presages calamity and awful punishment. Now, the method of the apostle I've been indicating to you is this. He starts off with a general statement. This is quite the common practice. It's a very convenient formula, a very convenient way for presenting the truth. He presents, first of all, the whole case. And then he comes back and he illustrates the general case in certain specific particulars. Now, I, I'm at pains to point out the importance of doing these two things, Sunday after Sunday. The general is never enough. The general is of vital importance. Many people miss the wood because of the trees. So you must start with the general. You must understand the whole position. But then you've got to see it also in particular cases. This is important for this reason. That uh, sin has so affected us all, that while we may see the position in general, we don't always see it in detail. We can see it in other people, but not in ourselves. And when the message is pointed in particular at us and our position, we resent it. We'll accept it about all the others, but not about our own. Well, that's the reason for dealing with the particulars. We've got to bring it down to each one of us. It's not enough for us to say there's something wrong with men. We must be clear as to what is wrong with men. And we must see how this general condition manifests itself in us in its various particulars. Now, we've been seeing Sunday by Sunday how extraordinarily contemporary this chapter is. No one who's been here these Sunday nights can have failed to realize that the prophet might very well be writing to Great Britain today. The very things that are most obvious and common in the life of this nation are the things that we find before us in this chapter. 
We've seen that he puts his fingers specifically upon materialism. Woe unto them that join house to house, living for the things of this world, materialism. We've seen that he also denounces and pronounces his woe upon the pleasure mania that is such a characteristic, so obvious and evident of the life of today. And then we've seen how he pronounces woe upon this kind of abandon with respect to sin, all shame forgotten. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin, as it were, with a cart rope. The open, unashamed, blatant, boastful sinning that is characteristic of this age. And the defiance of God, let him do it, is worst, they say. And then last week we saw this terrible confusion. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And over, overturning of all the recognized canons of judgment in almost every single department of life, most serious, of course, of all uh, when you come to the realm of morals and of conduct and of behavior. The attitude which says, evil be thou my good. Not merely that men are immoral or even amoral. Perverted, twisted, everything upside down. Glorying in evil, loving the darkness, hating the light. And now we come to this further one. What is this? Well, woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. What's this? Well, we've got a word for it today. This is what is called humanism. Humanism. Now, once more, this uh, point that I'm making comes out, I think, very strikingly. Humanism. That's the great creed of today. One of the most popular beliefs in this country. This belief in humanism. Now, the relevance of all this in general and in the particulars to our state and condition today is something that really should cause us to pause for a moment because it indicates certain things. So very clearly, the first thing that it indicates is this, that the Bible is a strangely contemporary book. People think the Bible's out of date. That's why they don't read it. They say, what's the Bible got to tell us about life today? Well, my dear friend, if you only read your Bible, you'll find that it tells you all about today. It's a, a strangely contemporary book. If you want the best descriptions of life as it is being lived at the present time, go to the Bible. There you'll find it. It indicates that to us. It shows us that this is no ordinary book. And you see, the Bible itself gives us the explanation of that very thing. It tells us that men's essential trouble is always the same. In other words, as the Bible puts it in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun, nothing at all. There is nothing that is so futile as this curious boast of modernity. Of all the boasts, it is the emptiest. There is nothing from the intellectual standpoint which is really so ridiculous as for people to think that modern life is something absolutely new and that we look back upon people who lived before us. What did they know about life? How we've advanced, what we've discovered, our way of thinking, our way of living. My dear friend, it's happened so many times before. It's all in the Bible. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing at all. I've often put it like this. 
modern man with all his cleverness is incapable of inventing a new sin. There is nothing being done in the worst haunts of vice in the city of London tonight but that you find it somewhere in the Bible. Nothing new under the sun. And this boast and claim of modernity and that we are not Christians because we are up to date. It is, I say, the most futile and the most foolish claim that a man can ever make. I, I can understand a man saying that he's not a Christian, that he doesn't accept the message. But he mustn't say that he's in that position because he lives in the 20th century. Because there's nothing new about that. People have been rejecting it throughout the centuries and for exactly the same reasons as we shall proceed uh, to show. No, I say that this astounding chapter alone shows us these things very clearly. The contemporary character of the word of God and the fact that there is nothing which is new under the sun. History is a most important matter. And if you study it, you'll see, as you get shown here so plainly, that it goes round in sight. We think that we are advancing, but we're not. We're always going round in a cycle. You get it, of course, in fashions. Everybody knows that. I was reading the other day of a man in, in the newspaper who'd kept a suit a number of years and uh, had been ashamed to wear it for a number of years, but now it's the fashionable thing to wear, and so on with ladies' clothing in particular. Keep your things long enough. You'll soon be in the fashion, my friend. There's no difficulty about this. It all goes round and round in cycles. And this is not only true about clothing. It's equally true about thinking. There are these cycles in the matter of thought even, and in all the realms of expression in life. Man goes round and round in cycles. Man's never very original. He has to go on repeating himself. Now, the Bible brings that out, I say, in a most amazing manner. Well, now then, here we are looking at this great characteristic of the modern world. Humanism. What does humanism mean? Well, I really cannot give a better definition of it than my text tonight. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. What is humanism? Well, the word tells us, doesn't it? Humanism is the belief in humanity, if you like, without God. It's a belief in man. It's an interest in man. It banishes God. Man is sufficient in and of himself. That is the very essence of humanism. Its whole interest is upon man. Man is the center of the universe. And there is nothing bigger and nothing greater than man. That is the essence of what is meant by humanism. Now, there are two main forms of this. I'm not going to keep you with that, but I must just mention them to you. And the two main forms that are most evident at the present time are these. There is what is called classical humanism. Classical humanism simply means this. That for your guidance in life, your understanding of life, you don't go to the Bible but you go back to Greek literature, Greek philosophy, Greek drama, Greek poetry. That's classical humanism. And the classical humanist is a man who studies these great Greek authors. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not here to say a word against them. They were truly great men. But, you see, humanism says there's nothing beyond. And that if you want wisdom, that's where you go. Classical humanism. In other words, that uh, you, you go back to the mind and the thinking and the meditation of these giant brains of the past. 
and you consider and grapple with and try to understand uh, what they thought and what they laid down, and you try to put it into practice, and that that is the way whereby you can live a good and an harmonious life in this present world. Classical humanism. And then the other form that humanism takes, of course, is what is called scientific humanism. And this is the more popular of the two at the present time. Incidentally, there's quite an entertaining fight going on between the two, as you know. Two great professors in Cambridge are having a public quarrel over this, and it's most interesting. Professor Lewis and Professor Sir Charles Snow, C.P. Snow. These two cultures, as they talk about. Well, there they are. There's the classical, you see, the poetic, the philosophic, and so on. And on the other side, there is this scientific outlook, scientific approach, and the feeling that uh, the answer to the problems is not going to come from Greek philosophy or poetry so much as from a scientific understanding of the whole universe, men included, and this is more modern. This claims that it's new and recent, because the discoveries are recent, at least comparatively recently, all going back very little more than some 500 years at the maximum. Scientific humanism. So you delve into the mysteries of the universe and you discover these things scientifically and there you've got your whole scheme with respect to life. Well now, then those are the two main forms. Now, we must examine this because we are told here, woe unto them that are humanists. But let's be clear about this. It is no part of the case for the Christian gospel to say anything derogatory of the intellect. Indeed, that's the very opposite of the gospel. The gospel places great value upon the intellect. Let nobody think that what is meant by my text tonight is that there is no value in a man having a brain or ability to use it or understanding of the power of reason and so on. It isn't that. There's nothing wrong with the intellect. There's nothing wrong with wisdom per se. Indeed, the Bible would tell us that the highest gift that God has given to men in the realm of gifts, I'm not talking about man's soul and spirit, but his actual gifts, that the highest of all the gifts is mind, is reason, is understanding. That's the wonderful thing about a man, that he can contemplate even himself. He can analyze himself. He can look on at himself. He can evaluate himself. He can criticize himself. This power of looking at yourself objectively and of reason. It's a tremendous gift given, according to the Bible, by God to man. So that there is nothing derogatory that must be said about the intellect or about reason or about mind. Let me say once more, I'm interested and somewhat amused when certain people seem to visit here occasionally and write an account of what they found happening here. And they seem to suggest that I tax my congregations. What they mean by that is that I make you think too much. I'm grateful for the compliment. It's a part of my belief concerning this gospel. I'm not here to tell stories. I never remember them to start with. But I'm not here to tell stories. I'm not here to entertain you. But I am here to reason with you. For the reason that I'm just giving that God has given men a mind, and man is meant to use it. It's the greatest gift of God to man, mind, reason, understanding. And as I'm going to show you, the whole trouble in the world tonight is due to the fact 
that man's mind has gone wrong. He doesn't know how to use it properly. Well, very well, then, what is the attitude of the Bible with regard to humanism? Well, it's this, that while there is everything that is right about the mind and the reason and the understanding, what is wrong is that men should put his final confidence in it. That men should be so proud of it that he begins to worship it. That man thinks that it's sufficient in and of itself, that he needs nothing beyond it. That man begins to boast of it. And to claim that with his mind and his reason, he can encompass the entire cosmos. That's what's wrong. You see, the text puts it so perfectly. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes. They put themselves up on a pedestal. Look at me, they say. Am I not wonderful? Wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. There's nothing wrong in being wise. But if you're wise in your own eyes, oh, you're in a very dangerous condition. It's excellent to be prudent, but if you're prudent in your own sight, well then you come under the condemnation that is delivered by the prophet at this particular point. Well now then, I trust that that is clear. Far from saying that there is no value in intellect, I am going to use what little I have as much as I can this evening, this evening and I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. Now then, why is, then, why is a woe pronounced on this? Why does God pronounce a woe upon those who are wise in their own eyes, who worship their brains and intellects and understanding, humanists? Why does he pronounce a woe upon The first answer to that question is this. That this is the very essence of men's trouble and problem. This is the main cause of all the ills of the human race tonight. Now, it's a very interesting thing, this. You read the Bible from beginning to end, and you will find that it says that this was man's original trouble, and that it has been his trouble ever since. The temptation that first came to men was this. Hath God said? In other words, uh, is God trying to keep you down? Is God trying to stand between, uh, you, between you and the knowledge of good and evil? Is God trying to withhold something from you? Here, says the devil, because he knows that you eat, if you eat of that fruit, you'll become as gods yourselves. You'll have understanding. You'll know everything. You'll be equal to God. That was man's first sin. And it has been the cause of all his subsequent troubles. You'll find all that described in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. But now, let me give it to you in the New Testament form. There it is, running right through the Old Testament. But now let's have a look at it in the New Testament. Listen to the Apostle Paul, for instance, in the second half of his first chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. He puts this very plainly and very clearly. He's describing why man has become what he is. And he says this is the cause of the trouble. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. But professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up. There it is, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. And then he puts it in the form of a bit of advice in chapter 12 
And we probably all need it, don't we? Here it is in Romans 12, 16. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Same thing, same thing. Wise in your own conceits. Trusting to your own wisdom, your own knowledge, your own cleverness, your own intellect, and feeling that you're so wonderful that you need no help at all. Well, then, of course, it's still clearer before us in that passage which I read to you at the beginning out of the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians in the first chapter, beginning at verse 17 and going on to the end of the third chapter, indeed right into the fourth chapter. Here's the whole problem. This gospel and the wisdom of the wise. The Greeks, philosophers, dismissing it. Foolish. Why? Well, because they're trusting to their own intellects and their own understanding. It's always been the great trouble. The Bible's full of this. No kind of person was more condemned by our Lord than the Pharisees. What was the trouble with the Pharisees? The trouble with the Pharisees was their conceit. They thought they were all right. They thought they were very wise. They thought they were doing everything perfectly. They were trusting to themselves that they were righteous. That's it. It's the same idea. They didn't need any help. And they resented the teaching of this upstart as they regarded him. Who was he to teach them? Pride of intellect. It was the central trouble with the Pharisees. It was a manifestation of a curious kind of humanism. And then that case of the rich fool that I read to you out of the 11th, out of the 12th chapter of Luke's gospel, also at the beginning. Now it's exactly the same thing. And so I say the case put forward in the Bible is this, that this is, in a sense, the ultimate sin. This is the thing that leads to all the other things. Man glorying in himself, glorying especially in his intellect and in his mind. You've noticed how the apostle worked it out there. And you see, this is how it becomes the ultimate sin. It is men misappropriating God's greatest gift to him. God complimented men by making him in his own image. And he gave them this astounding gift. This is the very thing that he uses against God for himself. And so brings himself down. It is the ultimate sin. Pride of intellect is the greatest trouble in the world at this present moment. Ultimately, it leads to all the other sins. Man's confidence in himself. Now then, why, I ask, is the woe pronounced upon this? Well, here are some further answers. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Why? Well, because they believe a lie. Because they believe something that isn't true. They think they're wise. They think they're prudent. But they're not. Now, this surely is one of the most amazing and astonishing things in the world this evening. Modern man is proud of himself, proud of his intellect, proud of his mind, proud of his understanding, proud of his wisdom. He's superior to all who've ever gone before him. Now, this is the thing, the problem that I put to you. How can it be the case that modern men can feel like that about himself with his world as it is at this moment. Have you ever thought about that? Man has never been so proud of his wisdom, his knowledge, his intellect, of himself, than he is now. Now, with the world as it is tonight. Man's glorying in himself with his world as it is. I say this is amazing. You know what the Bible says is the explanation? 
It says man glories in his wisdom and in his prudence because he's a fool. He's a fool. Any man who glories in his own wisdom is proclaiming that he's a fool. The wiser the man, the more humble he is. The greater a man's knowledge, the humbler he is. It's the men who have a smattering of knowledge who are always difficult. The man who rarely has great knowledge, he knows enough to know what he doesn't know. A little learning is a dangerous thing. And so the Bible says that the man who doesn't believe in God and who isn't a Christian, it says the ultimate truth about that man is that he's a fool. The Bible has got many terms which it uses about the, about the sinner. But this is the one it uses most frequently. The sinner is a fool. Our Lord put it in a word there in that parable I read to you just now about that rich fool. Here's a man boasting. Saul, take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be many. Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Congratulating himself. God said unto him, Thou fool! The man who thought he was so clever is nothing but a fool. He thought he was so wise. I'm all right, Jack. That's it. That's the modern way of putting it. I'm all right. Much good's laid up for many years. I've been so clever. I've used my mind. Oh, what a clever fellow I am. Thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose are these things which thou hast provided? He's a fool. But here I say, is this astonishing fact that man, with his world as it is, is proud of himself, his intellect, his understanding, and his achievements. And the Bible pronounces woe upon it because it's a lie. How do you prove that it's a lie, says someone? Well, I can do it, unfortunately, far too easily. I say that a man who is wise in his own eyes and prudent in his own sight is a man who is to be condemned because he condemns himself. He's a living lie. He claims he's wise, but how does he live? How do you test wisdom? How do you test intellect and understanding? It isn't a matter, you know, of reading books and being able to give answers. That's the big mistake people make. No, no, the way to test a man is this. Not what does he know, but has he the power to apply it? Does he understand it sufficiently to put it into practice? I've known many men who were excellent examinees, but they were useless afterwards. I've known men as medical students who could do well in an exam always, but clinically, face to face with a patient, they were useless. I knew men who used to learn things off by heart, and they could recite it like parrots, and therefore pass all exams. But when you put a patient right in front of them, they had no idea how to apply it. That's wisdom. The wise man is not merely the man who's got knowledge. You can get gramophone records to do that. They're now making machines that can do that, quite right, in order to show that that isn't wisdom. Wisdom is the power of appropriating, of uh, assimilating. The thing becomes part of you and it comes out as points of view and action and practice. So you judge a man's wisdom not merely by the number of books he's read and the books that he can quote and recite. No, no, you judge him by the way in which he lives. And what's it matter though a man may gain the whole world of knowledge and lose his own soul. What about mankind individually tonight? How are the wise men living? People who can tell us all about life. How many times have they passed through the divorce court, some of them? Great philosophers. You read their records. Never take a man's book alone. Find out something about him. It's so easy to write books. 
Very much easier than it is to live. Yes, it's easier to preach than it is to live. But that's the test of wisdom. And I'm not interested in a man's claim to great knowledge and wisdom and perspicuity and prudence and all these things if he's failing in his life, if he's a drunkard, if he's an adulterer, if you can't trust him. What's the value of it? He says he's wise, but he's not. He's a fool. He's deceiving himself. He's deluding himself. And what about it all collectively? Well, the world is proud of its learning, but look at it. I go on saying this, and I'm going on to say it. While modern man is proud of himself and his intellect and his wisdom and his prudence, I'm going to remind him that with all his wisdom and his prudence, he's already had two world wars in this one century. And he's blasted more people to destruction in this one century than has ever happened before. That's your modern man with his wisdom and his prudence. That's what he does in practice. And here he is tonight, arguing about these missiles and these bombs and means of destruction and there's tension and insecurity and uncertainty and quarreling and discord and moral muddle. And man boasts about his wisdom. He's wise in his own eyes and prudent in his own sight. With his world a mess. His world a kind of carnage before his very eye. It's a lie. And that's why it is condemned in the Bible. It's boasting, it's talk, it's bigness with nothing behind it. It's simply profession, but there's no practice. But I can demonstrate it in another way. Men, I say, shows that he's not wise by the way in which he lives. But I can prove that he's not wise in another respect, and that is his failure even to understand. And he likes to think that though he's not a perfect saint, as he puts it, he's got a great understanding. But does he understand? Wise in his own eyes. Very well. What's your view of yourself? What is man? Do you understand men? Do you understand yourself? Does modern man really understand himself? Does he understand the meaning of life? What is life? What does this modern man, who is so proud of his wisdom and of his prudence, what does he really tell us about life? What's, what is life according to him? Is it a big thing or a little thing? Is it a grand thing or something ignoble? What is it? Where is his understanding? Where does he show his prudence and his wisdom? What is the whole meaning of the world? What is history? Is there any design in it all? Is there purpose in it all? Or is it all just a bag of nonsense and anything may happen? Pointless, purposeless, just blundering along in any direction and nobody knows where nor what nor how. Where's the wisdom in all this? What does men know about the most important things? Oh, I know he knows a great deal about electricity and about the atom and power and all these abstruse scientific matters. All right, I'm not here to criticize it. But if when you're talking about wisdom, I say what I want is how to live. What is it all about? How can I be a man? How can I find happiness and peace? How can I live in a manner that I'll not be ashamed of myself at the end of my journey? That's wisdom. That's prudence. And what does modern men know about this? But not only that, he doesn't seem to know anything about the cause of his problems. These people who have been wise in their own sight and prudent in their own, uh, wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight for the last hundred years have been prophesying wonderful things for us in this century. 
We were going to solve all our problems once you educated people, once you gave them good houses, better salary. Everything was going to be solved. The Victorian thinkers, the philosophers, the poets, the politicians, the agnostics, they all said this. The trouble with men is that he's too poor. And while you've got poverty, you'll get crime. If only men are given a decent wage, if only they're given houses, if only they're educated, they'll stop doing all this. They'll live wonderful lives. Well, we've done all that, haven't we? But the problem's greater than ever. You see, man doesn't understand his problem. Where is this wisdom? Where is this prudence? He doesn't understand his problem. Still less is he able to cure his problem. Now I'm told that I mustn't criticize these modern dramatists and uh, novelists and so on. I'm told that they've all got a moral intent, that they're all moralists, and that they're all trying to improve. Well, what's their method of improvement? Their method of trying to improve is simply to describe but you know you don't solve a problem by describing it. You don't improve a situation simply by painting it. The business of the moralist is to solve the problem. is to get us out of the predicament. We don't need any more description. We know all about it. The Bible's full of that. There's no need for anybody to write a book to tell us how men sin. It's all here. And not only is it all here, anybody who's lived at all, he knows something about it. You don't need to get novels and films and dramas and all these things simply telling you how people do things. We know all about it. What we want to know is how to get out of it, how to stop it, how to be delivered. But you get nothing from them but description. Oh, I'm told it's very realistic. All right, but it doesn't make any difference. What would you think of a doctor who the next time you're taken desperately ill simply comes to you and gives you a report and an account of your temperature and your pulse rate and your respiration rate and the color of your skin and the state of your pupils and so on. He describes your condition to you and says that's your condition. Very serious, very bad. And then goes home. Well, all right, my friends, all right. I'm glad that you can see it. But you see, that's exactly what our humanists are telling us today. I'll grant them this, they're experts at description. They can tell us and analyze the condition for us, but they leave it there. There you are, they say, that's your condition. Get out of it if you can. They have nothing to give you. Why? Well, because there is nothing higher than man. And it's man who's failed. The description has told us that. Very well, then, I say that this is something that the Bible pronounces a woe upon because it's a lie, because it isn't true. Because the man who's so proud of his wisdom and his prudence hasn't got it. And he proves that he hasn't got it in the various ways that I have indicated to you. But come, let me give you a second reason why the Bible pronounces a woe on this kind of person. And this is much more serious. It pronounces a woe upon it not only because it's a lie, but because of that which it produces. It denounces it because of that to which it leads. This is worse than what I've been talking about. This is really the serious thing. Well, what is it? Well, first and foremost, pride itself. Pride is the greatest of all sins. Pride is more prolific in causing trouble than anything else in the world tonight. Pride. It's the ugliest of the sins. Pride and ambition. What havoc pride has caused in the long history of the human race. And this is nothing but pride of intellect. 
It leads to despising all who've gone before, and modern men's very fond of doing that. Nobody's known anything until he arrived on the scene, despises his forefathers. You get it in every realm of department. They dismiss all previous books, all previous knowledge. Everything's out of date. Nothing's of any value. Indeed, there are foolish men occupying Christian pulpits who really are saying this in effect, that nobody really could understand the Bible until this generation with our modern knowledge. They dismiss 19 centuries of Christian exposition and Christian learning. That in itself is enough to put them out of court. Their colossal conceit and pride. It's ugly. Let me use a strong word. It is stinking pride. And God hates it. He sees a man standing up and inflating himself. And he pronounces his world upon it. And then you see it leads to self-confidence. And the self-satisfaction. Our Lord has painted the perfect picture of this. In his parable of the Pharisee and the publican that went up into the temple to pray. Look at that Pharisee going right to the front. Here's a man who's pleased with himself. Here's a man who's got a mind and a brain. And here's a man who's thought. And he thanks God that he is what he is. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't ask for anything. Why? Well, because he's got everything. He can do everything himself. That is, of all men, the kind of men that Christ denounced most bitterly. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's what he says about them. And there is nothing more terrible in the sight of God than self-confidence. But you see, what makes this self-confidence such a terrible thing is that it always leads to rebellion against God. I reminded you at the beginning that that was the cause of the original sin. The devil came and he said, Hath God said, God's trying to hold you down, and they believed him. And they began to feel a hatred of God. They said, We don't need him. If only we get this knowledge, we can go on without him. We'll decide then, not God. So they put themselves up. And men's been on that pedestal ever since. Rebellion against God. This is the essence of humanism. The humanist is a man who says, I don't believe in God, and I'll tell you why. I don't need him. I can carry on perfectly well without him. There is no God. The fool hath said in his heart, says the 14th Psalm, first verse, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. But you know, I know many people who think that nobody ever said that until this century. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. That's a humanist. There, David says that in Psalm 14 and in the first verse. It was true at that time that was a thousand years before Christ was born. Nearly three thousand years ago, there were men who were saying, there is no God. And David says, yes, the fool says that. That's the humanist. He doesn't believe in God. Why? Well, because there's no need of God. What does a man need God for who is wise in his own eyes and prudent in his own sight? If he understands everything and can manage himself and everything, well, you, you don't need a God. And that's been the increasing position of the human race for the last hundred years. Knowledge growing and advancing, developments, scientific knowledge, we're all so advanced. Well, of course, they say there may have been a time when people needed God, but not now. And the same with all classes. Everybody's got enough now. We've got the money. We're getting better wages. We can get all we want and we can read. And we are men of knowledge. We are prudent. We don't need God. And that is the whole condition of the human race tonight. It is a rebellion against God. The carnal mind is enmity against God. 
is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, and that is always an immediate consequence of this rebellion against God. The moment a man thinks he's wise and rebels against God, you know what happens? He begins to go wrong morally. The thing is very subtle. Because man in his folly doesn't realize that his real objection to God is that he's going to obey him. That God is a God of justice and of righteousness and of holiness. And the Bible tells us that God made man in his own image and he meant him to live in some sort of manner like God himself. But man doesn't want to live like that. Man doesn't want to live an upright and a pure and a disciplined life and a holy life. He wants to give rein to his passions and his lusts. Desire. That's the thing. Forbidden fruit, of course. The illicit, ah, yeah, this is love, of course. People don't understand, but this is true love, this. I thought I was in love before, but this is, this is, this is love. I've got it now. I thought I had, but I haven't. Ah, I've got it now. This is love. Let them do what they like. Let them commit adultery. This is love. Don't talk about law. Don't bring in your morality. This, uh, that's legalism. Love. The answer is, of course, it's nothing but lust. And man, to suit his own lusts and his own convenience, tries to work out a philosophy. And in his philosophy, there's nothing higher than man. There's no God, so he's got nothing to fear, and all is well with him. But there has never been humanism without a moral decline. Now, the humanists I know, they claim to be very moral, and in their own personal lives, many of them are very moral people. But this is what I'm saying. The teaching of the Bible is that in every period when humanism has been in the ascendant, your morality has gone down, invariably. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, says Paul. And then what happened? Well, then, you see, the moral declension came in. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever for this cause. God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. This is all the consequence of being wise in their own eyes. Thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools. Thinking themselves to be wise, this is where they came to. Now this is a fact of history. Some of your great Greek philosophers were moral perverts. High idealists writing their blueprints of utopia, and yet guilty of the foulest vices. It always happens, and on the description goes in that second half of the first chapter of the epistle to the, to the Romans. The moral consequences always follow, and that's why God pronounces woe upon it. When man sets himself up as the final authority, he always descends into the abyss, invariably. Why? Well, because, as I've already explained to you, he cannot extricate himself. He can't deliver himself. He hasn't got the power. Which leads me to my last point, which is this. God pronounces woe upon this pride of intellect, this confidence in human understanding. Because it is the thing of everything else that causes a man to refuse God's way of salvation. This is the most calamitous thing of all. 
Here is man in his awful plight, in his terrible predicament. He tries to extricate himself. He perfects his educational systems. He multiplies his edu his cultural media. Never has man been so busy in trying to put himself right as he's been in the last hundred years, and especially in this present century. Man has exhausted almost every conceivable effort, yet in spite of it all, we see what's happening to the situation. And yet in this very situation, when the gospel of Christ is offered to him, which can deliver him and set him free and save him, he refuses it. Why? Because he feels he's sufficient. Because he thinks he's wise. Because he thinks he's prudent. Because he still thinks he can do it. Why doesn't he read history? Why doesn't he read his own books? History proves that man cannot deliver himself, try as he will, with all his might and main. All your great civilizations have gone down. And the present civilization is going down. But man still refuses the offer of the gospel. He still spurns the voice divine. He still laughs at Christ and ridicules the cross. And spits into the face of God and says he doesn't need it. This pride, this is the thing. That's the trouble with men. It is his pride of intellect. He says, I won't believe unless I can understand. He wants to understand God. He thinks he's so big that he can measure God himself. He can measure infinity. Pride, understanding, prudence. Pride of intellect. And so man is under the wrath and the woe of God finally because he refuses God's offer. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he believeth not in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. God pronounces a word. And I see this calamity coming upon this present generation. Here is men today more than ever standing up, pride in his own wisdom, wise in his own eyes, and prudent in his own sight, saying he doesn't need God, saying he can order his own affairs, saying he can perfect his world, standing up and saying all this, refusing the gospel, ridiculing it, blaspheming it. And like that rich fool turning to himself, and congratulating himself and saying, So, there was much good laid up for many years. Take thine easy drink and be merry. It's a good world. You're having a good time. Never had it better, whatever the phrase is. And here he is congratulating himself. The universe is. But God said, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. And what if some of these great leading scientists today are right? And this universe hasn't got another ten years to go. What then? Where's your wisdom? Where's your learning? Where's your knowledge? Where's your understanding? Where's it all? When God says, Now, this night, 
You've got to go out of this world. You've got to die. Whether of a virus infection or an atomic bomb, it doesn't matter, but you've got to die. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. What then, my friend? Where's your wisdom? Where's your learning? Where's your understanding? Do you know where you're going? Do you know what happens to you after death? Can you tell me what happens in that great unknown beyond? Here is wisdom. What am I? How do I live? How do I die? What happens to me afterwards? Where's your wisdom? Where's your knowledge? What are you boasting of? You've got nothing. Nothing at all. And God pronounces his woe upon it. And he does so in a very terrifying manner. Let me just read to you a few verses before I close out of the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, and the book which tells us of this day that is coming when God will arise and say, This night, this is what will happen. Let me read in the 18th chapter of Revelations, beginning at verse 18. And the great men of the earth, we are told, cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, this great city Babylon civilization. They cried, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman whatsoever crafty be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, and by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. This Babylon of civilization, it's going to be destroyed in an hour when God arises. Woe unto you that are wise in your own eyes and prudent in your own sight. Is that the last word? Thank God it isn't. But that's the last word about humanism. It's wrong, essentially. It's a fraud. It's a lie. It's deceit. It's a failure. It can do nothing. And it defies God and blasphemes him. And is calling down wrath upon itself. But thank God it isn't the last word. In spite of this insanity of men. In spite of the fact that men is such a fool. A blind fool. God has mercy upon him. There is an answer to it all. Do you know what it is? Here it is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the thing. Man's got to be awakened. He's got to realize it. He's got to see what I've been trying to say. That he's a fool. That he's a failure. That it's going to lead to a fatal end. And he's got to submit. 
If any man willeth to be wise in this world, says the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.18, if any man willeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be made wise. Man's wisdom leads to nothing. But oh, there is this wisdom from God. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block. And unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto us which are saved Christ the power of God. And the wisdom of God. When the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. When men had completely failed, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. What is necessary? Well, there it is. If any man willeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool. Let him admit he knows nothing. Let him become a barbarian. Let him be dismissed by the Greeks as a barbarian, as a fool. Let the wise men all laugh at him and say he's got a religious complex, or that he's gone soft or something like that. Let, them, let him become a fool, that he may be made wise, that God may make him wise, that God may give him wisdom, and it's all in Christ. And Christ himself, you see, put it like this. Except he be converted and become as little children, he shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Woe unto him that is wise in his own eyes. What can he do? Let him become as a little child. Let him admit he knows nothing. Let him say, I'm but a child, I thought I knew. I was just fooling myself. I was drunk on my own intellect. But when it comes to the point, I don't know anything about myself. I don't understand life. I don't understand the world. I can't do anything about it. I can't control myself. I can't improve the world. I see everything going wrong. I'm a fool. I'm a child. I know nothing. Oh, blessed man who comes to that position. Except he be converted and become as little children. He shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of God. How can I get this wisdom that you have, says the learned, self-confident Nicodemus to Christ. This was the answer. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He doesn't need an addition to his great knowledge and his great brain. He needs a new nature. He needs to be born again. He can't do anything. No man can do anything. But God can. There is a new birth. To be born of water. To be born of the Spirit. To repent and have the operation of God on you. When he gives you a new mind. A new understanding. A new heart. A new love. A new desire. God's wisdom in Christ. That is the way to solve the problem. This is heavenly wisdom. This is divine wisdom. And it is still being offered to men and women tonight in spite of all the arrogance and the pride and the conceit and the foolish self-confidence. The moment a man realizes the folly of it all and goes to God and admits it and confesses it and says, I'm a fool. I've been a fool in my mind and in my conceit I don't know. And I'm vile, I'm unworthy, I'm sinful. The Bible's true in what it says about me. God, have mercy upon me, can you? And God will give the answer. I can, of course I can. I sent my only begotten Son into the world to redeem people like you. 
you've become as a little child. So I offer to you in Christ my Son, who bore your sins in his own body on the tree. I offer you free forgiveness. I tell you, I'll blot out all your sins as if you'd never committed a sin in your life. I'll make you a new man. I'll give you a new start. I'll give you a new power. I'll open your mind. I'll give you an understanding of my own scheme. I'll open to you the very gate of heaven, and you'll begin to look even into eternity itself. I'll make you wise. If any man willeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be made wise. My dear friends, face the facts. Repent. Believe the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, God's wisdom, God's way of saving us out of the predicament into which our foolish pride has brought us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Sight, healing, riches of the mind, yea, all I need in thee to find. O Lamb of God, I come. Say that thing.